It says the opening of heaven on it. We have a lot to uh, cover. I started on this. I thought it, this text would take uh, about two and a half hours, so I cut about 20 minutes. We're good to go. We're in Revelation chapter 4. This is a significant change. We have been through the seven letters of Revelation, and uh, now we're starting to move into the good stuff with all the images. Um, so we're going to do the entire chapter today. From here on out, most of Revelation will be in bigger chunks than we have taken up to now. So it's going to start moving a lot quicker. And so today we're doing all of chapter 4. If you turn there in your Bibles or look along, uh, your outline is kind of divided up, uh, so it'll probably be easier to read along uh, in your Bibles. Revelation 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of heaven, overwhelm us as you overwhelmed John. Remind us of what this is all about. Remind us that we join a worship service already in progress. Lord, help us to meet Jesus in his glory as we see him in these words. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There is a scene in the movie, My Cousin Vinny, about glasses. Now, this isn't the best movie in the world. But it's really funny. However, there's a ton of bad language in it, too, so it's one of those mixed reviews. Anyway, the movie's about a murder trial in Alabama. And one of the witnesses is an elderly lady who testifies that she clearly saw the two suspects leave the scene of the crime. And during the trial, the defense counsel, Vinnie, is able to demonstrate that her vision isn't nearly as good as her claims. To which she sheepishly replies... I think it's time for new glasses. Glasses determine how we see the world. 
Now that makes more sense for those of us who actually wear glasses or contacts, as the case may be. So let me ask those who wear glasses or contacts to remember the first time you put them on. The world around you came into focus. Perhaps for you, it wasn't all that dramatic. For me, it was. I was in the third grade. I was in the lowest reading group in the grade. My parents discovered I needed glasses one night after dinner, pretty much by accident. We had company for dinner that night, and uh, so I had to move and sit on the other side of the dining room table next to my sister, Perish the Thought. I hope she doesn't listen to the podcast. Um, but from the other side of the table, I could now see the clock in the kitchen, which was normally behind me. Now, to this day, after dinner, my dad uh, has a cup of coffee and takes off his glasses and lays them down on the table. Except this night, I was sitting right there to his right. And uh, so he took off his glasses, and he put them down on the table and just kind of sat back. And I picked him up and put them on and said, hey, look, there's numbers on the clock. <laughs> and I took them off and said, now they're gone. <laughs> and I put them back on and said, now they're back. <laughs> and my parents went into a full-blown panic and rushed me to the only evening optometrist that they could find open at the SS Craig Kresge's department store, which since 1977 has been known as Kmart. But this was approximately 1966. And so I had my first eye exam. And they discovered I was pretty much blind. And that's true. If I take off my glasses, I see blobs. I mean, even of the Cook's family, just blobs. And they're closest to me. I can't make out any distinguishing items on their face. I can't see a thing. And so I got my first pair of glasses. They had those exciting brown tortoiseshell frames, which once again are very stylish. I was merely 40 years ahead of everyone else. And I remember on the ride home, from S.S. Kresge's. And I was sitting in the middle of the back seat of my parents' old station wagon. Yes, it runs in the family. And since we didn't have seatbelts back then, I was leaning forward on the front seat and looking out the front window with my new glasses. And I was reading all the signs on the way home because I never knew before that all those signs had words on them. So I read all the signs as my parents drove home. Sears, Woolworths, it was 66. And my mom cried all the way home. And three weeks later, I was in the top reading group in my grade. Glasses dramatically changed my life because reality came into focus. Now, for some of you who don't wear glasses, think about times when you wear sunglasses. Sunglasses protect our eyes from the glare, but by doing so, they slightly distort reality. Some colors are dulled, others are sharpened. And if we always wore sunglasses and we never took them off, we would have an inaccurate view of reality. We'd also have lots of bumps and bruises from walking into things. But the fact of the matter is that every one of us wears a set of glasses. And these glasses don't come from an optometrist. These glasses were given to us by our parents and by our family, by our experiences, by our teachers, and by our culture. And these glasses are shaped by our relationships, the books we read, the movies we uh, see, the songs we sing, 
and the sorrows and joys we live through. And these glasses we wear provide us with a frame of reference. They give us our perception of reality. So the question then is, is my perception of reality correct? Am I seeing things the way they really are? Now, when I began this book, uh, this series on the book of Revelation back in September, I told you that this understanding of reality has a profound effect on us. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now let me point out a few ways it helps us to see the rest of life differently. I believe if we really understand who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world, then we'll see every part of life differently. Our possessions aren't things that we've earned or deserved. They're not the source of meaning to life, even though we often act as if they can provide that for us. But the spiritual reality is that all possessions are gifts from God to be used for his glory. Or how about when we're facing trials and temptations, which we all face? If you've never faced any, just wait a while. They're coming. The spiritual reality is that if Jesus really is in control, if he's exercising his pastoral care over us, then we have no grounds for getting angry about our lot in life. We have no reason to complain about how unfair life is. Instead, we'll use these trials as controlled uh, by God. We'll see these trials as controlled by God. We'll use them, uh, he will use them in our lives for his own good purposes to transform us into the likeness of his son, comforting others through us, ultimately bringing glory to his name. The book of Revelation was written to help us remember these truths. These truths are only available through God's revelation of truth in his word, in his living word, Jesus, and his written word, the Bible. And the Bible is our authority, the source God gives us to see and understand the spiritual realities that otherwise we would never see. Now, if we put all of this together, what do we have? What we have in the book of Revelation is the disclosure of an alternate reality. And an exhortation to John, the Apostle John's Christian friends, to live their lives in keeping with that reality. One scholar suggests that what Revelation is designed to do is to purge our imagination and give us an alternate vision of the world in which we live. And to John's contemporaries and to us, the world, you see, appears to be one thing. In fact, it's something quite different from what it appears to be, but only faith can see that. Only God can show us what's really happening in the world and what life and history mean. And the world looks very different from heaven. Things take on such a different meaning when they're seen from a heavenly, divine, transcendent, eternal perspective. And in imperceptible ways, we also come to the temptation to accept what we can see, what we can touch, what we hear to be ultimate reality, even when we know it's not. The visible trumps the invisible every day in our lives. The tangible trumps the intangible. The temporal trumps the eternal. How many of us would have to admit that far, far too much of the time we live as if the Almighty were not working out his purposes of grace and judgment in the world with a view to bringing its entire history suddenly to a dramatic, catastrophic close. I mean, we text, we shop, we eat and drink, we make small talk while multitudes drop off uh, and drop dead around us, slip off to hell, while the great prospect of heaven remains so dim to us that we can go days and weeks and even months without thinking a serious thought about it. And the Apostle John is saying, you cannot live the Christian life this way. 
You cannot, you must not allow the visual to overwhelm the invisible. There is but one reality, one truth, and that is the reality, the truth, as it is in heaven. And John is bringing that reality down to us as he was given to see it, and in a form dramatic enough to arrest our attention and penetrate our conscience. Now we've gotten to Revelation chapter 4. And so now we're starting to enter the world of apocalyptic images. And it's time to put on our Revelation glasses. So let's do that. And let's begin by looking at what John sees and then what John hears. And we'll start with the summons of Christ, verse 1. The summons of Christ. He writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that was back in chapter 1, said, so it's the same person speaking. We know that was the Lord Jesus. The first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The passage starts out with the phrase, after this I looked. It's a phrase that we'll see again and again as we study this book. It shows up in chapters 7, 15, 18, and 19. And it's important for us to realize that John is not signaling a particular chronology of the future by this statement. As though what happens next will be subsequent to whatever happened in the previous chapter. He is not saying this thing happened and then this second thing happened after the first thing. Not everyone likes that because it, it kind of wrecks the dispensational premillennial view of coming attractions. Rather, John is merely telling us the order in which he received the visions. He receives a vision, and after this he looked, he receives another vision. And after this he looked, and he got another vision. And since the visions repeat themselves... Failure to appreciate that point leads us astray. And having heard that Jesus reigns over the church in the letters that he wrote to the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3, John is now given a sight of Jesus as he's reigning in glorious triumph. And the scene changes from the closed door in Laodicea to an open door that leads to heaven. The mention of a throne in chapter 3 to a glimpse of a throne in chapter 4. It's as if Jesus was saying, okay, if you won't open the door to the church uh, to me here on earth, I'll open the door of heaven to you. The door of the church in heaven. And from the poverty-stricken state of the church on earth, John's gaze is taken upwards to see things as they truly are. And that upward gaze is often the signal of a new perspective on things. God is in control of providence. And the church may be languishing. And Satan may be doing his worst, but God is reigning on high. And there's two issues here that change our perspective on this, and those are location and time. As for location, we're taken up to heaven. Not the life hereafter, so much as the life here and now, but from a different perspective. Paul reminds us, uh, he reminds the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 2, he says, You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, present tense. And so John here is reminded of a greater reality than that which can be seen and touched. The opening of heaven is a characteristic apocalyptic phenomenon. And it's preparing us for the giving uh, of new or perhaps of forgotten revelation. How much the church today needs to pay attention to this. There's a reality which transcends that which we can see with our physical eyes. 
And as for time, John has shown, the text says, what must take place after this? A reference which appears to include the whole of human history from John's time to our time and beyond. We interpret it that way because he used the same phrase back in Revelation 1, verse 19. And it's reasonable to conclude that its repetition signals a parallel vision. What we see in chapter 4 is true at the same time as what is seen in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is reigning as he writes to the seven churches. And encapsulated in a single vision is the future of the church in the world. And this is not science fiction, but biblical reality. God has the whole world, he has the whole church in his hands. As Jeremiah 17, 12 says, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. And now chapters 4 and 5 belong together because they establish the same two truths. First, that God is sovereign, and second, that God is to be worshipped. These truths complement one another. They're different, but they're similar. Sort of, uh, they belong together like shoes on feet. But because of the fall, mankind has neglected both of those truths. And the church has often failed to see the connection between the two. You know, the saying goes, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. And that's true. And from the start, God showed himself as creator, sovereignly making all things out of nothing, bringing everything that has existence into being by the word of his mouth. And the story of the Bible is the story of mankind ignoring God, ignoring his kingship, uh, coveting other lords, to rule over us, ones that can be manipulated to do what we want. And worship, consequently, was misplaced. And for centuries and millennia, man has worshipped creatures rather than the Creator. Of course, we know that happens. Paul tells us in Romans 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, in one vision, Revelation brings into focus before us the one who truly rules the world, the one who is on the throne. Look at verses 2 and 3, and who is on the throne. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It says, behold, a throne. It's not way out there. It's not way up there. It's right here. It's close at hand. But you can't see it with the unaided, guy, uh, unaided eye. You can't see it with the pair of glasses given to you by the culture. You have to put on your revelation glasses. Behold, a throne. Do you see the throne? Can you imagine the throne? You need to because it's the most dominant image in the book of Revelation. The Apostle Paul directly refers to it 47 times. And he indirectly refers to it another 77 times. Behold, a throne. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Good news. The throne of the universe is occupied. Again, with our ordinary glasses, we might think otherwise. It often feels like the headquarters has been abandoned, like there's no one in charge, no one in control. And uh, even worse, sometimes it feels like there's been a coup. And the powers of chaos, evil, and death have stormed the palace and taken over. But look, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. It's the kind of vision Bible readers will have noticed before. In particular, it shows a lot of similarities to the vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1 with its throne and its rainbow. If you've been attending 
uh, Rich Coffin's Sunday school class on Ezekiel, then this is all old hat to you. And then God's dazzling light is portrayed of being like brilliant, precious jewels. And these precious stones are a perfect symbol. Jasper is a translucent uh, stone. It's kind of like glass that's revealing and yet concealing. And the colors of carnelian range from yellow to red to green. And the one who sits on the throne is altogether lovely, dazzling beyond description. And several Old Testament images come together here. A, a rainbow whose beauty is a sign of God's covenant mercy to a fallen world, which we see in Genesis 9. The rainbow reminds us of its appearance after the flood as a sign of God's mercy to Noah and his family. Precious stones anticipate an entire list of precious stones in Revelation 21. And so in some aspects, the rainbow together with the precious stones anticipates the new creation. But then we see that God is not there by himself. We have to see who is around the throne. Look at verse 4. Who is around the throne? It says around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. God's throne is surrounded by 24 thrones on which sit 24 elders. The number 24 is a way of portraying both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, both serving as a representation of the whole church. And that would fulfill the promise uh, that Jesus made in Matthew 19, where he told his disciples, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Some scholars see these uh, 24 elders on the 24 thrones as representatives of the 24 orders of priests in the Old Testament. Either way, it doesn't directly say, it just says they're there. What is being shown is of great significance. The saints of the Old Testament, together with those who have died so far in the New Testament, are not only alive, they're reigning. Now, to the saints that John's writing to in those seven churches, this is good news. They're concerned about loved ones who've been martyred. Many of those first readers of Revelation had friends and relatives who had died at the hand of Rome, at the hand of persecution. This vision comes as wonderful news. Wonderful, but also frightening. Because next we see what is before the throne. Starting at verse 5, what is before the throne? It says, From the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This language of lightning, rumblings, and thunder is reminiscent of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law which we see in Exodus 19, where it says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then we see that before the throne are seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This imagery was also used back in chapter 1. And you can see even on our banners uh, that Luis put together, with us of Revelation 1 through 3 and then 4 and 5. You can start to get an idea of this. It comes, all comes to us from the prophet Zechariah, particularly Zechariah chapter 4, where it says, He said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. And then in the next chapter in Revelation 5, we're given a further explanation about these seven spirits. It says, In between the throne and the four living creatures 
and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John is seeing this vision and he's, he's struggling to describe it. He doesn't have the right words to describe what he sees. So he pulls from the Old Testament and uses those words to try to describe what he's seeing. And the Zechariah passages help us to understand what's in view here, that the Lamb is Jesus. And he sees and knows what's taking place on the earth with all those eyes. And he's able to do something about it with the horns. And by the seven spirits signifying the Holy Spirit, God is exercising his sovereignty on the earth. The Holy Spirit carries out God's plan and God's purpose. And then we're told in verse 6, and I think this is significant, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This sea shows the peaceful purity of God's sanctuary. Remember, we've gone through an open door looking into heaven. It appeared in various forms to earlier prophets, to Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and Israel's elders. They were called up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And there we read Exodus 24. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. The sea will reappear in Revelation 15 as the transparent pavement on which the martyrs stand to celebrate God's victory in Revelation 15. This heavenly sea, so tranquil, it seems to be glass, contrasts sharply with the earthly sea, which in Revelation is a region of rebellion from which the beast emerges to wage war against the saints. The earthly sea, a source and symbol of satanic chaos, is destined for destruction with the passing of the first heaven and first earth. But the clarity and purity and peacefulness of this crystal pavement beneath God's feet will permeate the new Jerusalem. Now John and his contemporaries in those seven churches, they needed this vision the church, like uh, in the seven churches, when we looked at them, it's like a little boat being tossed on stormy waves. And with unaided eyes, looking through ordinary glasses, the situation seems hopeless. But then they get revelation glasses, and they're able to sing with the psalmist, O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise you still them. Which would remind these people of whom? Jesus. When you read, you rule the raging of the sea, when its waves rise, you still them, who should you think of? Jesus, Luke chapter 8. One day he got in a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. When we wear the revelation glasses, we realize we never need to panic. Nothing, including the sea, can overcome the one who sits on the throne. Now, I've told you, you have to use your imagination in Revelation. You have to use your imagination to see this scene. Close your eyes for a moment. All of you. Close your eyes. Try to visualize this scene. Throne. Rainbow. Flashes of lightning. Brilliant, amazing colors of precious jewels. 
torches of fire and a sea of glass. It's the throne room of heaven. But Jesus is not done with this vision. You can open your eyes. Because next he shows John, what do they uh, do around the throne? He shows them, starting at the end of verse 6, what they do around the throne. He says, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. You can see that on the picture. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In the center and around the thrones are four living creatures. It's not the worship of the church that's first alluded to, but that of the entire creation. The four living creatures are a lion, the noblest, an ox, the strongest, a human, the wisest, and an eagle, the swiftest. And what's likely here is this signals the Bible's anticipation of the redemption of creation itself, which we see in Romans 8, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So we read in 2 Peter 2, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And in the background are similar images, not identical, but similar images to passages in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6, which was our responsive reading this morning. And like Isaiah's description of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy conveys what is essential to God's revelation of himself. Holiness spells out what is different, the way in which God separates himself from the rest of creation. The first and last songs of the Bible exalt God's holiness. Moses, thinking of what God had done in the crossing of the Red Sea and the deliverance of Israel, sang, Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And then we find in Revelation 15, those who'd been victorious over the beast sing a similar song. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And combining the worship offered by the four creatures and the 24 elders, there are several other attributes seem to dominate the worship of heaven. The first is God is holy. The second is God is mighty. God is almighty. His power and majesty are beyond human understanding. He is the creator of everything that has existed by the power of his word. He brought what is into being. And it's a truth that's designed to encourage as much as intimidate. For in languishing churches, such as these seven churches in Asia Minor, facing the onslaughts of Satan in a wicked and hostile world, confronted with all kinds of persecution and idolatry. The knowledge that God is far superior is of great value. Psalm 93 tells us, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the word is established. It shall never be moved. God's sovereignty is the guarantee of providence. He is the creator of all that is. We see that at the end of this chapter, verse 11. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We can read that in Acts 17. 
Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And in that great passage in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, speaking of Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is almighty. Then we see that God is great in the sense that he is exalted. When the 24 elders join in the worship of God, they fall down before him. They're expressing awe and submissiveness. God is incomprehensible. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, a story is told that someone once asked uh, St. Augustine, what was God doing before he created the world? In which Augustine replied, he was making hell for people who ask questions like that. <laughs> Blunt but effective. But Calvin would point out to us again and again, there is a mystery about the nature of God that should make us fear him in a spirit of reverence and humility. Notice we're given these images, and you have to use your imagination. We're not given a photograph of the throne room of heaven. There's mystery to it. The four living creatures are said to have six wings, as though they're ready to fly in whatever direction God commands. Worship always yields in service. It was Paul's conclusion, his great treatment on the application of redemption. The whole book of Romans and he, he ends that entire exposition at the beginning of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, because of everything I've said in the first 11 chapters, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So God is almighty. God is great. God is near. The Bible word glory is used here. We often use that to describe God's deity, his divinity. But when we do that, we miss a vital biblical truth. God's glory is his nature and his power revealed, shown forth. That's what John says about Jesus in John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when it said that God receives glory, it indicates that God is being worshipped as God. He's been given the honor that is due him. When Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, he wasn't saying our Father who's far, far away. He's saying our Father who art on the throne, close at hand. God is near. And last, God is eternal. In verse 4 we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in contrast to us, the four living creatures exalt the eternity of God. Unlike creation, there is no beginning or end to the existence of God. And worship is being taken up with God. It is giving him the praise and adoration due his name. And the more we know of God, the more childlike our faith should become. We cannot know too much, and nor can this truth be overemphasized. I mean, after all, even the Apostle John gets it wrong. He's confronted with an angel in Revelation 19, and so he starts to bow down to worship it because it was so glorious looking. And he says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, talking of the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus Worship God. And what's said here is important. Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The words remind us of Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember the story, he said he was the greatest one in the world. So God basically turned him into a cow, sent him out to eat grass, and then finally he came to his senses and said, I'm not God, God is God. And so God restored him 
to his rule as the king. And then he said, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God's sovereignty is the basis of worship. The will of God is ultimate here. Not man's will, not the church's will, but the will of God alone. He creates and upholds to fulfill his own purpose. And appreciating that reduces us to size. I mean, what was the watchword of the Reformation? To God alone be the glory. They understood the issue of sovereignty. And heaven will eternally reflect this perspective, and our earthly worship should seek to conform to it. And again, with ordinary glasses, we don't see any of this. That's why we need to put on our revelation glasses. Last notice that the living God is so secure in this vision that God sits. Not once in the book of Revelation are we told that God the Father stands. He is on the throne, pulsating with brilliance, light, life, glory, infinite calm, the prayer of every mother, and absolute power, the other prayer of every mother. But think about what this means. This letter is written to seven churches. This vision given to John is being relayed to seven real churches, churches just like ours. The Lutheran scholar Craig Keister sums up the importance of what we've seen. He says, how would this vision of the heavenly throne room strike the members of those churches? He says, first, those churches, those Christians that were facing the threat of persecution would have found this vision reassuring since it shows that God reigns despite the hostility that they receive from human beings. Marcy's going to Myanmar, or going to Bangladesh. Anne-Marie's going to Myanmar. Christians there are being persecuted. What do they need to hear? They need to hear, your God reigns. He's sitting on the throne. That's what these churches needed to hear. The power ultimately rests in the hands of the creator and not their accusers. Second, those in those churches that were seeking to accommodate the culture, the pagan culture, that were embracing idolatry, they probably would have been uneasy with this vision. For if God reigns, then compromising your convictions for the sake of social ease or economic ease warrants the censures that they received in those letters to those churches in Revelation 2 and 3. In allying themselves with the non-Christian world, they distanced themselves from the heavenly world. And third, those who, like we saw in Laodicea, that were complacent and self-satisfied and self-sufficient, I imagine they would find this vision disturbing. For in comparison to the splendor of God's presence, their pride in their own wealth and their own prestige is shown to be an act of self-deception. But whether the vision is disturbing or reassuring, it is designed to attract all of its readers. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you're facing, to attract everyone into the heavenly chorus where they too can join in singing praises to God and to the Lamb. The entire creation is worshiping God. Heaven is a place of worship. And what John is saying, so do not be afraid. Things are not as they seem. Behold a throne with someone sitting on it, and from the throne, lightning and thunder and a rainbow, and from before the throne, the seven spirits of God and a sea smooth as glass, clear as crystal. And from around the throne, creation and the church, 
declaring the glory and praises of the one who sits on the throne forever and ever. When we come to worship, we're entering a service already in progress. Worship does not begin with us, and it will not end with us. When we gather to worship, we step into a worship service that's already been going on for a long, long time. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us again. Thank you for opening the door to heaven for us to see. Lord, thank you for giving us a new perspective of what reality really looks like. And there are those of us here this morning, I'm sure, who need a new perspective. Lord, enable them, enable us to really see. Help us to focus on Jesus. Don't ever allow us to think of worship as an ordinary thing, but as something where we gather to join with creation and the church and the elders and the angels and the archangels to worship the one who lives forever and ever, who sits on the throne. With these visions of revelation, change us. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.